California is the biggest state. It has the greatest, the largest population of same-sex couples. And if marriage, if and when, I should say, I I don't know when, but eventually, certainly, marriage will be reopened to same-sex couples. I think it will have a big effect uh, for the country as a whole. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could join us today. I'm Craig Williams from a somewhat overcast Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And Craig, let me say a, a big thanks to you for covering for me. I think I've been, I missed a, a couple of weeks worth of shows, if not more than that. And I appreciate your uh, carrying the load on your own. Well, it just wasn't the same without you, Bob. But glad to have you back. <laughs> I'll take your word on that. Yeah, well, it wasn't the same. <laughs> Good. In any event, uh, well... We'd like to thank our sponsors, Clio, web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com and firm manager from LexisNexis at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. And Bob, I know you write a couple of legal blogs that I'm sure that our listeners have completely forgotten about. <laughs> I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And you? And I have another one that everyone's forgotten about. It's uh, called May It Please the Court. And I also have a book out called How to Get Sued. So, Bob, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going to be happening with the show here? Well, we're going to talk today about uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that came down, uh, ruling that just came down just a few weeks ago, uh, that uh, concluding that California's Prop 8, uh, uh, which is the ballot measure that banned gay marriage in that state, is unconstitutional. Uh, the ruling leaves the question or perhaps begs the question, uh, is this case now headed for the U.S. Supreme Court? And if so, what's going to happen there? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, Bob, we're going to be taking a look at what this means for the future of gay marriage in America. And joining us today is Jennifer Pizer. She is the legal director and Arnold D. Cassie's Senior Scholar of Law at the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law. Jennifer comes to the Williams Institute after a very successful career at Lambda Legal, where she was senior counsel and the National Marriage Project Director. She also co-authored California's Broad Domestic Partnership Law, which has become a model for other states and frequently advises federal, state, and local policymakers on LGBT issues. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jennifer. Great to be with you guys. And joining us also today is Vikram David Amar, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at the University of California Davis School of Law. Professor Amar uh, is an expert on the U.S. Constitution and Supreme Court practice and procedure. He has argued that the power of the people to undo a California Supreme Court ruling as Proposition 8 aimed to do has troubling implications for minority rights in other areas. So we will uh, explore that and more uh, with him uh, as the show goes on. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, uh, Vic. Thank you for having me. Well, Jenny, why don't you, excuse me, Jennifer, why don't you start off the show by giving us a brief history of Proposition 8? Sure. Well, uh, Proposition 8 was a state uh, constitutional um, amendment that was passed in November of 2008. It, it uh, went to the voters at the same time as the, uh, the last presidential election. Um, and uh, it was put before the voters um, 
about six months after the California Supreme Court had ruled as a matter of state constitutional law that same-sex couples uh, need to have the same right to marry as different-sex couples. Um, and this was, uh, so the vote was taken actually about five months after same-sex couples began to marry in California. Uh, so in that period of time, about uh, estimate is 18,000 same-sex couples got married, and then the voters passed Prop 8. Um, and in terms of the the precursor to the court case that we're going to talk about um, now, uh, there was a round of state court litigation uh, arguing within the state uh, court system about whether that constitutional change uh, was consistent with uh, what the state constitution allows. Uh, and the California Supreme Court said, yes, that it was. So the, the couples who were married um, during that window remain married, but uh, Prop 8 was going to uh, and has remained in force um, moving forward. So since that time, same-sex couples have not been able to marry in California, and the state has had an interesting family law situation where there's quite a few married same-sex couples. Um, There are same-sex couples and some different-sex couples in registered domestic partnerships with the same rights and responsibilities under state law, but not the uh, status, uh, sort of social recognition and, and legal status of being married. Um, and that uh, sort of complicated family law situation in California is part of what the court, um, what the federal court considered in the federal challenge to Prop 8, which was, uh, which was started in May of 2009, um, a case called, first called Perry versus Schwarzenegger, now called Perry, Perry versus Brown. Um, and so that, that federal litigation testing the state constitutional amendment against federal constitutional norms uh, is the case that yielded an important decision just last week. And uh, Vic, Vic, do you want to take it from there? I mean, you've, you've looked at the decision of the Ninth Circuit. Uh, what's, your, uh, what's your take on that? Well, let me pick up where Ms. Pizer left off. So yeah. um, there was a, uh, an action filed uh, by same-sex couples and also by the city of San Francisco in federal district court uh, in San Francisco, and then uh, Judge Vaughn Walker held a trial and then ruled on the merits that Prop 8 violates the federal 14th Amendment, the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment. Um, and that's the case that it went up to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed that decision uh, recently, albeit on somewhat more narrow grounds than some of the reasons, at least, that Judge Walker had given. And there was a kind of an interesting and perhaps potentially still important uh, kind of development a- along the way. One of the key issues about Prop 8 is it's not being defended by the elected officials of California, the Attorney General or the Governor. Um, uh, Kamala Harris is the Attorney General, Jerry Brown is the Governor. They've made a determination that they agree with the plaintiffs that Prop 8 violates the federal constitution, and therefore they're not going to defend it in court. So in this federal lawsuit, both at the trial court and then at the Ninth Circuit, Prop 8 was defended by the the official sponsors of the initiative, the proponents, the people who put together the signatures to to, uh, qualify the measure for the ballot. And there's an important question about whether those sponsors have standing, that is, whether they are legally appropriate parties to defend the measure in federal court. The Ninth Circuit looked at that issue more deeply than the the, uh, trial court did, than Judge Walker did, and they asked for some input by the California Supreme Court, which last November weighed in and said, at least in California state court, initiative sponsors do have the ability to defend an initiative, because if they didn't, then elected officials could essentially let an initiative die, and that would be inconsistent with the nature of the initiative, which is supposed to be a check on elected officials. 
But I'm, I'm not sure that what the California Supreme Court said last November really fully answers the question of whether the sponsors have standing in federal court. Um, and that's an issue that, that might uh, re-arise if, when the case goes to either the Ninth Circuit on uh, banc or the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's where we're kind of at that point. We're not sure what the next step is going to be. The Ninth Circuit, when it affirmed the district court and struck down Prop 8, did so by a two-to-one vote and on pretty narrow California-specific grounds. That is to say, Judge Reinhardt's opinion went out of its way not to call into question laws in all the Western states governed by the Ninth Circuit that prohibit gay marriage. He pointed out unique features of California's scheme that he said made it distinctively irrational and distinctively likely to have been the product of some kind of bias. In particular, the fact that California repealed a right that already existed rather than declined to extend one in the first place. And then second, that repeal was super narrow in that it repealed the label of marriage only and left in place, left intact, all the tangible benefits of marriage that same-sex couples enjoy under the domestic partnership regime. And by by leaving the rest of the, the regime intact and withdrawing the label only, Judge Reinhardt said, California acted kind of less rationally. Now, I'm not sure that those reasons are going to convince everybody else in the country, including the Supreme Court, but he wrote the opinion so as to try to uh, at least preserve the possibility that the Supreme Court could either stay out because this ruling doesn't affect other states besides California, or if the Supreme Court does step in, um, maybe they'll limit their analysis to the California case and not really resolve the issue more generally. Jenny, I've, I've, I wanted to follow up with a question that we read in your, um, in your bio that you had some things to do with the California domestic partnership law. Can you explain how that works? Uh, and specifically, um, how does it work for people who are under 65 and straight? <laughs> yeah, excellent question. Well, the, the California Registered Domestic Partnership Law, or, or maybe the, the, the domestic partner system uh, more broadly, it's not just one law, um, it, was, it was created uh, by a 1999 law, and it first opened for business January 1 of, of 2000. And um, the original concept um, that the legislature considered was to, to have a registration system open to same-sex and different-sex couples equally, uh, and to provide very limited rights at first, but then to expand the rights and add responsibilities over time as uh, the legislators and the public saw how the system was working. Um, and uh, uh, then Governor Gray Davis uh, was not um, in favor of having a domestic partnership system open to different sex couples, to heterosexual couples, because he viewed that as something that, that would be seen as undermining marriage. His view was that, was that heterosexual couples... Um, who have a committed relationship should get married and that he supported that system um, and didn't want to be seen as undermining that um, with an interesting recognition, I think, because sometimes people uh, take the position um, that that same-sex couples marrying uh, somehow undermines marriage for uh, for different sex couples, and this was a different perspective that what might undermine marriage for for heterosexual couples was offering something lesser, more limited, and and giving people more options rather than the complete set of responsibilities. Um, but but Governor Davis recognized uh, particular needs that heterosexual seniors sometimes face, where uh, in particular if if it's a if it's a second or third a, later, a relationship that forms later in life, where one or 
or both of the individuals in that heterosexual relationship, maybe depending on social security, um, that would be reduced if they remarried. That that most often in the past has happened uh, to a surviving widow who's, who, who got a greater degree of social security support based on what her deceased husband had earned, and then if she remarries, her social security would, would drop down. The point being that, that because of those particular needs of, of some seniors, the California Registered Domestic Partner System and some other states as well, like Washington State, um, allows couples, if, if either heterosexual partner um, is over 65, uh, that, that that heterosexual couple can register as domestic partners, and, and, and that can help protect some family assets. I think it's a system that, as time goes on, may um, be less protective as federal law evolves in certain ways. Um, but it has set up a a kind of complicated system that can sometimes seem hard to defend. And that becomes relevant in the marriage cases where you have same-sex couples having certain options and different sex couples having certain options and both groups facing these barriers that treat them differently. And the, it, it prompts judges and others to ask themselves whether there really are adequate reasons for the state to be treating people differently in these ways, to be treating people differently based on their sexual orientation. Um, and, and part of what um, Judge Walker looked at part of what the Ninth Circuit has looked at, and, and very much what the California courts looked at during the state marriage litigation that took place from 2004 to 2008, is whether the state has adequate reasons for treating people differently, especially as the laws have evolved so that the registered domestic partnership system now um, offers, uh, it, it, registration entails, all of the same rights and responsibilities under California law. So what is different is the the method through which a couple enters this system, either with a marriage ceremony, solemnization, licensing, and and those uh, conventional, well-understood rituals, or through um, sending in a, a notarized registration form. Um, so I, I sometimes think of it as, you know, there's the front door, and there's the back door, but both groups of people end up in the same living room with the same the same rights and responsibilities. And is that constitutionally defensible? Um, and and folks should keep in mind that that kind of those um, having two separate systems for one one for heterosexual couples and another one for for same sex couples, with the exception of this you know this uh, separate treatment of seniors in some states. Um, that kind of system now exists in quite a lot of states. It's, it's, uh, I think at my last count it was 15 states that, um, that offers uh, either a domestic partnership system or a civil union system um, where there's, where there's a, uh, a full set of rights and responsibilities but not the same social status as marriage. And that, the question about whether government has a good reason for offering a preferred system to one group and a less preferred system to another group, and in particular a group that has historically been treated less favorably by the law. Um, that poses a serious equal protection question, and that's, that's the question that Judge Reinhardt's decision um, addresses, uh, and, and I'll mention that he was joined by, by Judge Hawkins. Uh, both of them felt that that problem was sufficiently serious and recognizable under existing um, equal protection doctrine that there was no need to reach some of the other questions uh, that Judge Walker had addressed, in particular whether whether equal protection 
uh, analysis, whether whether anti-gay classifications should be uh, should be presumed to be unconstitutional and subjected to strict scrutiny or heightened scrutiny of some sort. Um, that question was not answered. And also, uh, we don't have an answer to whether uh, lesbian and gay Americans have the same fundamental right to marry the person of their choice that the courts have recognized as being an important right of, uh, of heterosexual Americans. That due process question also will have to wait to uh, a future day. Well, I, I wonder, uh, Vic, I wonder if I could ask you uh, just to follow up with what Jennifer was saying. I mean, it, it's clear that the Ninth Circuit uh, panel uh, Opinion here was was decided on, on I guess much narrower grounds than, than Judge Walker's uh, the trial judge's uh, ruling had been. Uh, you know how, what what's what's your analysis of how the Ninth Circuit uh, looked at this? I mean, there's been some talk that they've been they were kind of teeing it up uh, for a possible Supreme Court review. Uh, how do you see that? Well, I think um, the conventional wisdom is that, that Judge Reinhardt wrote an opinion so as to try to discourage the Supreme Court from granting review because um, he wrote it in such a California-specific uh, way. Um, as, as Ms. Pizer pointed out, you know, there's a big question about how much justification is needed by the government to explain um, diff- treating uh, same-sex couples differently uh, than opposite-sex couples. And uh, a lot of people think that uh, laws that discriminate against uh, gays and lesbians should be suspect and should require a real meaty justification on the part of government. That's so-called intermediate or strict scrutiny, either because uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is like discrimination on the basis of gender or because gays and lesbians uh, have been a, a historically disfavored group and they, they're not fully able to uh, have their interests heard in the political process. Other people, like Judge Reinhardt, said, well, even if you apply the most generous, lenient standard of review, what's called minimum rationality review, in which the government simply needs to come up with some reason for doing what it's doing, that these laws that, uh, like Prop 8 uh, fail even that test, or at least Prop 8 did. And I think you know, a lot of folks wonder whether minimum rationality review really in, imposes the kind of uh, of burden that Judge Reinhardt uh, seemed to suggest uh, when he tried to dissect the, each of California's possible reasons and reject each one of them. Uh, to me, a more intellectually kind of honest approach would would be to recognize that discrimination against gays and lesbians might implicate a higher standard review, if that's what you think, um, and then explain uh, that the state can't satisfy that. Um, but, you know, lower courts are in a bit of a bind here because uh, the legal landscape seems to be changing at the Supreme Court. You have cases like Romer versus Evans from 1996 and Lawrence v. Texas from 2003 that do recognize um, the rights of, of same-sex individuals, but the Supreme Court has not been fully explanatory uh, about why these laws uh, that discriminate against gays are troubling. And so lower courts uh, are kind of having to read the tea leaves of what the Supreme Court might do um, and as a result, the opinions like Judge Reinhardt's aren't going to convince everybody because some of the analytic moves that get made uh, are open to question and create some, some odd uh, incentives. On the big question of what the U.S. Supreme Court will do um, when, it, when and if it takes uh, this or another case, I'm not sure people know. I think uh, there are probably four votes on the Supreme Court to certainly reject any claim of same-sex marriage, the more conservative four justices. 
Um, and then you've got the other five, and it's hard to know what they think, and especially what Justice Kennedy thinks. In the past, he's, he's kind of suggested that discrimination against gays and lesbians might be different than failure to recognize same-sex marriage. He, he said that in Lawrence versus Texas in 2003, but the world has changed a lot since 2003, and it continues to change. Um, so I think part of what the Supreme Court might say depends on when the Supreme Court says it, um, and time is probably on the side of same-sex marriage proponents and against um, people like the backers of Prop A. Well, it's time for us to take a quick break. When we return, we'll have more on the recent Prop 8 ruling right after this. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. If you're like many solo and small firm attorneys, it can be challenging to manage both your practice and give your clients the attention they need. Well, now you can do it all free for 30 days with LexisNexis Firm Manager. Built from the ground up for attorneys like you, it's an easy way to get organized, master your business, and keep your clients happy. Firm Manager is secure, web-based, and mobile, so you can manage your practice anytime, anywhere, from your laptop, smartphone, iPad, or tablet. No IT hassles, no long-term commitments, and best of all, no more worries about what needs to be done. Get your free 30-day trial of LexisNexis Firm Manager today at firmmanager.com slash LTN. That's firmmanager.com slash LTN. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi and uh, my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I are talking about uh, the Ninth Circuit ruling uh, on Prop 8 with our guest Jennifer Pizer, uh, legal director of the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law. 
and uh, Vikram David Amar, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at the University of California, Davis School of Law. And uh, uh, I mean, Jennifer, what are your thoughts on, on whether this is headed to the Supreme Court, this case uh, in particular, or, what, or how this issue might reach the Supreme Court or what might happen there? Yeah, well, I, I agree with a, with a great deal of, of what uh, Vic has just laid out. I mean, I think there is a question about whether the Supreme Court might be interested in this question of standing, because the Ninth Circuit decision, which which relied quite a lot on what the California Supreme Court said about the uh, that it that it's important to to determine that proponents of an initiative can step into the shoes of the state officials if state officials. Uh, refused to defend a measure. Um, that that was a new rule of law in California, and it's it's central to what the Ninth Circuit just said about standing. And it it is uh, it's a different way of looking at the issue than what the Calif- what the U.S. Supreme Court said about standing a, a number of years ago in a case that came out of Arizona that had to do with with uh, initiative proponents and standing. So that procedural question, which you know, lawyers we all know that actually it's very important to know who gets to bring a case and what circumstances. So it's it's procedural, but it's certainly not trivial. Um, that question could be interesting to the um, to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's it's a, because it's a it's a there's a rule of California law that's at the center of it. Um, the the Supreme Court might not be interested, but that that we you know remains to be seen. Um, I think that. Um, we need to stress that this opinion seems to have been written um, as a, if if not a love note, at least a correspondence with uh, with Justice Kennedy, applying um, his reasoning from the uh, the Romer case, the 1996 Colorado Amendment Two case, um, and and I agree with that with Vic that part of what's going on here is that the Supreme Court and Justice Kennedy in particular in these two very important cases about the the constitutional rights of of gay Americans equality rights and liberty rights um, he has been less than clear on exactly what the legal standard uh, should be in these areas he's decided these these important cases about equality and and liberty striking down the sodomy laws without clearly saying this is the standard and this is how the standard relates to past cases and this is what we think you should do moving forward. Um, and so so lower courts have interpreted those decisions in different ways. And here's a here's a case where I think what was done, it, uh, the analysis is very like Romer, although there are a couple of places where maybe there's a little bit of of stretching or readjusting for a for a different set of circumstances, but it may well be that it's close enough that Kennedy would would either um, think that it's not impo- that his view may be it doesn't need to be reviewed, it doesn't deviate very much from from what they said in Romer, uh, or if there are four uh, justices that want to hear the case at the Supreme Court level, that Kennedy would join the more liberal four and uh, uh, apply Romer and 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 think that this is fine. And then there will be questions about effects for other states. If it does go up to the Supreme Court, and if if this kind of a ruling were affirmed, it wouldn't be a big step forward in terms of legal doctrine, but it would have, I think, uh, quite a significant effect uh, because, 
again, I agree with Vic, it, it's about same-sex couples marrying. That's a different subject area, even if we're talking about a fairly familiar legal doctrine. California is the biggest state. It has the greatest, the largest population of same-sex couples. And if marriage, if we're, and or when, I should say, I, I don't know when, but eventually, certainly, marriage will be reopened to same-sex couples. I think it will have a big effect uh, for the country as a whole. Notice that we are seeing activity, not just in terms of courts, but in terms of quite a few legislatures now looking at marriage bills. Washington just, uh, the legislature just passed a bill. The governor signed it to open marriage. That may well go to a referendum vote, but the legislature has spoken. The New Jersey legislature is speaking to the subject. It may get a veto from Governor Christie, but that's a legislature speaking in Maryland. Likewise, there's a there's a bill uh, in Maine. There is likely to be a ballot measure brought by those who want to open marriage to same-sex couples. So these are all measures of of the legal climate, the political climate, and the social climate evolving fairly quickly. And we know that members of the Supreme Court do watch these developments because especially including the um, Justice Kennedy, um, he wants the evolution of constitutional doctrine to be happening in a way that relates to the way uh, changing social ideas are developing. And and so I think there's a relationship there that means we may see progress sooner than some of us might have thought even just five years ago. Don't don't blame me. I'm from Massachusetts, as we like to say. And and as you look at this, (laughs) are we really looking back at a a seminal moment in civil rights history here? Um, You know, it seems to me that the issue of gay marriage is one that is quite a bit like the issue of... uh, the civil rights movement in the 1960s, where we established uh, rights for African Americans, uh, is it really is it that significant, or are we going to see a sea change in the kind of uh, constitutional law that we're we're thinking of? Is Vic, what do you think about that? Well, I think it is a very big development. I mean, some people would draw the parallel you just drew, and others um, would resist that parallel and and say the experiences of African Americans. Um, is very different than the experiences and the reasons why uh, same-sex couples are treated differently. Uh, I'm not going to weigh in on that. Let me um, just build a little bit on on what uh, Jennifer said earlier. I'm actually not quite sure that Romer, that's the 1996 case from Colorado that that Justice Kennedy wrote, is really that similar to Prop 8 in a couple of respects. Remember, Judge Reinhart leaned on two aspects of Prop 8 to, to, to say that it was distinctively problematic. One, it repealed an existing right. And two, it was so narrow as to just repeal the label only. Well, I don't think Romer was really a case about repeal so much as unfair exclusion. Um, Justice Kennedy and Romer actually used the word uh, withheld uh, in lieu of, uh, of repealed once. And I think that the facts of the, that Colorado case would have, would have generated the same result, even if it hadn't been a repeal. I don't think the court stressed the repeal nature of what Colorado had done. And second, um, Justice Kennedy and Romer stressed repeatedly that one of the problems with the Colorado law was it was so broad that it wasn't narrow. Um, so Reinhardt's focus on the narrowness of Prop 8 really takes it out of the Romer box. Um, so we'll see if and when the court grants cert how, how closely Romer fits. I think um, it would be an extension of Romer, perhaps not an unjustified one, but an extension of Romer um, to, to, uh, to rule the way Judge Reinhardt did. Let me go back to the standing question, though, for a moment. Um, you know, if one's goal were to put California in the same-sex marriage column, that is to, to, to let Prop 8 die, 
um, and, and add California to the list of same-sex marriage states, and also to keep the Supreme Court out of this issue for a while because the time is not quite yet ripe, because there, as Jennifer pointed out, there is all this percolation in all these states. I'm not saying that was, that's the, the, uh, a, a legitimate uh, uh, kind of goal to have, but if that was the goal of the Ninth Circuit, I think standing would have been a better way to go because then Prop 8 would die just as it dies under Reinhardt's opinion because if, if the AG and the governor aren't defending it and if the sponsors don't have standing, then um, Prop 8 can't be enforced. Someone else will bring a suit, a statewide class action to challenge Prop 8, and they'll win by default. But notice that under that circumstance, Prop 8 would die not because of an unelected and famously liberal judge, Steve Reinhardt, but rather by the decisions of California elected officials and the voters who put them there, the AG and the governor. And in some ways, that might have been a better victory for same-sex marriage proponents to count California as a same-sex marriage state. And a, a standing uh, uh, resolution that, that denied the sponsor standing would certainly have been unlikely to prompt the Supreme Court to step in and grant review. So it would have insulated the, uh, the opinion from that as well. So who knows what's going to happen, but like Jennifer said, maybe the Supreme Court will step in and look at the standing question only and not even reach the merits. Yeah, and let, let me just add well, something Jennifer, to that. We, well, I, Jennifer, I need to interrupt because it's, it's time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts, and we'll, we'll flip it over to you first uh, along and ask you as well to provide your contact information. Yeah, well, let me start by saying uh, folks should visit the the web uh, site of the Williams Institute, which is williamsinstitute.law.ucla.edu, or you can just uh, Google and uh, find us, the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law. Uh, and let me close with, with two thoughts about standing. Um, Judge Reinhardt favors more liberal standing rules, and he wrote the decision in the Arizona case that the Supreme Court disagreed with. So I, I don't necessarily disagree with, with what Vic just uh, said uh, about um, had the standing analysis gone the other way, but Judge Reinhardt has his views, and, and he's written them, and the Supreme Court may possibly disagree with him again. We'll see. Uh, let me close by just saying on the question about is this or is this not a, a civil rights movement and the parallels, our country, I, I think, I think our history has been so enriched with multiple different movements about minority groups and the the civil rights movement uh, for racial justice for African Americans is is certainly the signature one, but there have been numerous other ones and and this this movement for LGBT equality um, is certainly happening before our eyes. I think it's very exciting and if it gets more people interested in constitutional law, that's a wonderful thing. And Vic? Your final thoughts and your contact information, please? Sure. Um, I'm at the UC Davis School of Law, and if you just Google that, you can see our website and all the information about me and everyone else there. I also write a column uh, on constitutional matters uh, every two weeks for Justia, J-U-S-T-I-A, uh, com, which is a, a website for legal news and, and analysis. And I also uh, have a column on Jurist, J-U-R-I-S-T dot org, focusing on the Ninth Circuit's Prop 8 ruling and the standing question uh, and whether Judge uh, Reinhardt's opinion kind of uh, is going to provoke a uh, 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 response by the Supreme Court and the like, so people could take a look at that. Um, you know, I think if you had to predict, uh, it's hard to imagine that same-sex marriage would not be recognized as a federal right uh, down the road. I just think that's the way Justice Kennedy and, and others on the court will go, ultimately. Um, whether, whether you agree with that or not, I'm just saying that as a predictive matter, that's likely to happen. 
Um, the question is, you know, when is a case likely to get to the Supreme Court? I don't know if this one's going to be the one. I'll close by mentioning there's also important cases under the Defense of Marriage Act, the so-called DOMA, and they might get to the Supreme Court first. And what the Supreme Court says there might influence what happens with respect to same-sex marriage in the states. Great. Well, Jennifer and Vic, thank you very much for being on the show today. We tremendously appreciate your involvement and your participation and your thoughts. And uh, for our guests, or for our listeners, rather, we want to remind them that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. Yeah, let me just add my thanks to our guests today. It was a really, really interesting discussion. Uh, really appreciate your time and your thoughts. Thanks for inviting me. It was a great, uh, so great pleasure. And Bob, we also would like to remind our listeners as well that they can find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. See you next week. We'll see you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.